welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to see your great gift of Jesus that you have given to this world and open the doors of our heart. In the Savior's name, amen. I wonder, has anybody here sent a Christmas card to Jesus? How many of you have sent Christmas cards to each other? I know that there's some folk who enjoy sending out hundreds of them this time of the year. Has anyone here wished Jesus a happy Christmas? Hmm, that's interesting. You know, you may send a Christmas card to Jesus... Most of the time, Christmas cards uh, seldom mean very much, but occasionally they are filled with a lot of news about families that you haven't connected with all year, and it's always nice to get caught up on the news, isn't it, of what's happening with the people that you've known in the past and you've been separated by distance, and it's good to read their little letter that they'll uh, put into their Christmas cards. But uh, isn't it time that we got around to wishing Jesus a happy Christmas by thinking about him and sympathizing with him. What do you say? You know, it's not fair to be wishing everybody else a happy Christmas and not to think about Jesus, that is, about his feelings. I'm not talking about putting Christ back into Christmas like a lot of people talk about this time of the year, and I don't mean what they do. I see nothing wrong with uh, devoting special attention to events that are connected with the birth of Christ and having special celebrations. But isn't it true that Christ has feelings too? Just like we do. And since supposedly this is a time to remember his birth into the world, isn't it right and proper for us to think about him? And would it make him happy for us to think about him, and especially think about his feelings? You know, one of the most precious expressions in the Bible, I think, and we studied this at Thanksgiving time, is the backward prayer there in John chapter 4 and verse 31, where the disciples were thinking about Jesus and his needs and his feelings, And they came to the Lord and they said this, Master, eat. You eat. And we we pointed out that almost all of our prayers the Lord receives in his heavenly communication center are just the exact opposite of that. Most of our prayers are, Master, give us something to eat. Isn't that correct? (laughs) Give us something to eat. And we think of God as mankind's great Santa Claus, And it is hoped that Christmas will come every day for us. Thanks, Lord, for what you gave me yesterday. Now for what I need today. And here it is, my list. And thanks again for keeping me in mind. Amen. 
Lord, I thank you for what you've done for me yesterday, but what have you done for me today? That's most of our prayers. The master rarely hears a prayer like this one in John 4, verse 31, in reverse gear. Master, you eat. You are hungry. You've had a long, hard journey today. It's been a very hot and dusty day. And look, we have gone to the shops in town, and we have bought some bread and some figs and some milk and some raisins and almonds. It's a tasty little picnic lunch for you. Master, we've been thinking about you, and we understand how you feel, and we know it's no fun to be tired and hungry. Master, you eat. That is the backward prayer. Not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of Jesus. And it is a rare child who thinks of giving his benefactors anything. You know, he may give Santa Claus credit for his Christmas gifts, but he finds it hard to think in terms of Santa-centeredness. That fat, jolly Santa with his toy factory up there in the North Pole, you know. How can Santa ever need toys or food? He has it all in his factory. What else could he need? How does Jesus feel? God, for us, is sometimes a Santa Claus. He, he gives you anything he feels like, and if you've been a good boy or a good girl, why, and have not been naughty, if you've been nice, then you'll get what you ask for. Most prayers are quite like children's letters to Santa Claus. Here's one. Dear Santa, my name is Ricky, but you probably know this already. I'm 12, almost going on 13. I didn't have to think very hard about what I wanted this year for Christmas. I really wish I had a mongoose bicycle so that I can hang out more with my friends. You know, I already have a bike, but I outgrew it, and I thought maybe someone smaller than me would like it. Oh, and by the way, I would also like a PlayStation, the latest model, you know. My friends tell me how much fun they are having with it. And I need some clothes, too, because that would mean a lot for me, because I get teased a lot about wearing the same clothes all the time at school, and I just uh, don't want to keep giving my mom laundry to do every day. So no matter what I do, I get teased. I also wish you could stop all of the wars... Why is it that people just can't get along? I know I didn't do too good in school this year, but I'll promise to try harder, and I hope most of my wishes can be made true. Merry Christmas. Sincerely, Ricky. Most of our prayers are like those Santa Claus letters, aren't they? Or how about Morgan's, dear Santa? I'm so excited about you coming to our house this year. We have put up a tree and the stockings, and I think I've been a good girl this year, and I hope you can bring me one of those Barbie singing machines. I also hope that you can bring my daddy home for Christmas. He's in the Air Force, and he's off fighting those bad people in a far-off country. It would be very nice for him to come home for Christmas. I'll leave you some milk and cookies again this year because you seem to really like uh, Mommy's cookies. I hope you stay warm and safe on Christmas Eve. Your friend Morgan. Oftentimes our prayers are like those Christmas letters of children, aren't they? But at Christmas time, is it possible for greedy children and parents to think of Christ born as a baby in Bethlehem and he has feelings just like you do? He, has, he was born with our heredity. He still today has feelings. Yes, there is 
joy in heaven today. But there is also sorrow today in the heart of Jesus and in the heart of God. Contemplate this statement from Ellen White, uh, the book Education, on page uh, 263. She says, those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused the Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony. But that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. God has feelings. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Have you thought of the feelings of our God and of Jesus? Can Christ have a happy Christmas is the question this morning. You say, yes, he can. He sees all of those children that are going to be eating their Christmas candies and their pies and their puddings and their ice cream. And when Jesus sees them opening those presents and those toys and playing with their video games and bicycles and those girls dancing for joy over a new dress or coat and the ladies and the sweethearts elated over the gifts of perfume and jewelry and men happy over getting a new boat or a new set of golf clubs or a computer or a new sports car, millions opening presents at that moment on Christmas morning Isn't Christ happy to see them pleased with their gifts? Well, Christ rejoices when he sees people happy. Yes, most certainly. But he knows something that we don't see. Happiness is not to be found in all of these material possessions. True happiness. No, Christ is never deceived by superficial, effervescent happiness. In the first place, I don't think he's happy over children eating a lot of candy and surfeiting and frivolity and over adults, you know, having a merry, M-E-R-R-Y, Christmas. I know he's never happy about the hundreds who are killed on the highways on the holiday season because of alcohol. I don't think... Jesus is happy about that, and yet they're drinking their alcohol in celebration of his very name, Christmas. I don't think he's happy to see the sorrow and the bereavement that that caused. In fact, he's deeply pained when his name is dragged into so much evil and soul-destroying frivolity in the name of Christmas. As Christ looks down on the world today, with its debit and its credit side. Most joy is in materialism. And this is not deep, is it? It's not lasting. It's not real happiness. Real joy is something that eludes most on Christmas. But we read this in Scripture. Psalm 1611, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. 
At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And Jesus said this in in John 15 and verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, my word I've spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And that shows us that by receiving and retaining what Jesus tells us, we receive and we retain real joy. When we receive the words of Jesus and retain them, that is receiving genuine joy. Joy comes by believing the words of the Lord. By receiving his words, we get fullness of joy, perfect joy. But that shows us also that Jesus, he had perfect joy. Amen? Fullness of joy. For it is his joy that he tells us we are to receive. We get fullness of joy through Jesus simply because he is joy in perfection. His cup of joy was full. When was it that he expressed the wish that his perfect joy might abide in his disciples, as we've read here in John 15, 11. He expressed this to them on the very night of his betrayal. Imagine that. While he was on the way to the place where he knew that he would be delivered into the hands of cruel men to be mocked and beaten and scourged and crucified, he was expressing how his disciples might have his perfect joy. Imagine that. Now, I'll tell you something. That is a joy that is worth having. Amen? A joy that is worth having. A joy that is perfect in itself and does not depend on circumstances. It is the possession of such joy and that alone that enables one, it certainly did for Jesus, to endure affliction. Jesus, because of the joy that he had continually before him and present with him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Now that joy is found not in doubting, it is not found in experimenting, but in believing his word. There are millionaires that would give all of their possessions for such joy that would deliver them from painful anxieties when the poorest man and woman like you and me can have it simply by taking the words of the Lord and letting those words abide in us and having them fulfilled in us is perfect joy. How can Christians be otherwise than glad when they serve a master who is gladness itself? But, you know, the world, the world does not know this joy We hear about the swirl of expensive parties that are going on right now. But after those big parties, the inebriates go home and they burst into tears, don't they? How long shall human hearts be oppressed with empty, vain frivolity that only mocks the deepest longings for joy? It is Christ Christ sympathizes with the needs of human hearts. He cannot have a happy Christmas so long as human hearts are in pain, so long as they are estranged 
from the joy that they might have in God. What will make Christ happy at Christmas? Ask boys and girls, what do you want for Christmas? Every boy and girl in the whole world would like to have a big bag of candy or a new iPod or a new doll or new clothes. Granted, Christ doesn't want to see his people going around naked. He knows that everybody in the world, if everybody in the world had a million dollars for Christmas, that would not increase their joy. That wouldn't do it. How many homicides are there at this time of the year? How many? In many poorer homes of developing countries today, there's no turkey, there's no ham, not even a steak, there's no plum pudding, there's no ice cream, but there may be a special treat store-bought, a loaf of store-bought bread in place of the diet that they eat on a regular basis of rice and beans and maybe some white sweet potatoes, but they are more happy with those simple things than all Westerners with their luxuries. What will make Christ happy when those who profess his name know his joy? That will make Christ happy when those who profess his name know his joy. What was his joy? How was he happy? Think for a moment. We're told that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but he knew joy. He knew a deep, sustaining joy. He was never glum. He was never discouraged. Well, first of all, he was born in a stable and not the Holiday Inn where they had a, had a lot of frivolity and parties at the bar. There were angels with him in the stable. His friends were not the town mayor of Bethlehem, nor the president of the local chamber of commerce, but what were present were humble shepherds. And what they talked about was the wonder of this child. The wonder of this child. Secondly, Jesus grew up as a peasant. He was much different than the other youths of his village. His was a painful youth. He was despised. We are told in Isaiah 53 that there was no beauty that we should desire him. His peers taunted him. Young people faced many painful, awkward experiences. Young people, you can know that Jesus experienced all of them as a youth, without exception. And yet, joy sustained him in, in his youth. The joy of loving concern for others. He enjoyed lunches that were prepared by the tender hands of his mother. Maybe those were peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I don't know. He received kindly words from his father and his mother. Jesus was no weakling when he was a young person. Thirdly, as a man, he walked alone because he was misunderstood. There were very few who really understood and resonated with what he was about. His own family was often against him. The rulers also didn't recognize him, and the rulers tried to thwart his main purpose for being here, his big plans. I don't know, but those who aspire for a career, they know the greatest thing for an achiever is his life's work, his success, 
his accomplishments. One desires more than even money, and that is the recognition of achievement and success. However, for Christ, his own nation turned against his mission. He was a seeming failure at his mission. His own received him not, John says in chapter 1, verse 11. Yet, joy sustained him in ministry amidst the disappointments. Joy sustained him. Fourthly, where did the Father's path lead Christ? It was certainly a much more painful pathway than for any one of us. This innocent baby was destined to die a criminal's death. And yet, joy sustained him. However, Christ harbored no resentments and no bitterness against his enemies. Isn't that marvelous? That is marvelous. Let someone say something bitter and spiteful to you or to me, and we brood over it for days, don't we? Thinking about it. What sustained Christ was the joy of his work accomplished in ministering to hurting people. His joy is revealed in a very strange passage. I invite you to open your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm just for a moment to meditate on a couple of verses. Psalm 22 and verse 1 is really a transcript, uh, if there ever was one, present at Calvary who could take down not just the words spoken by Jesus, but also the feelings that were going through his mind as he was crucified this stenographer took down the thoughts, the prayers of Jesus, and the first words that were uttered there in Psalm 22, verse 1, people heard them, and no doubt someone went to Mary, his mother, and said, Mary, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I heard your son express the thought that God had forsaken him. Can you imagine how Mary must have thought that my son has come to this, that my son that I thought was the Messiah has finally confessed that the whole thing of his life was a monstrous fraud, he's a nobody, that God has turned his back on him. No doubt that was like a sword that was thrust and plunged into the heart of Mary. Yes, it's the first verse. was spoken audibly by Jesus on the cross my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did you see those words there? Why art thou so far from helping me? And the Hebrew word here is a word that describes an animal that is caught in a trap and is crying in distress. And from the words of my roaring, he felt that God was far from him. Isn't that how we sinners feel? Isn't it? Maybe you felt that way. I know you have because I felt that way and I'm human. You're human too. God, why are you so far away from me? If you are a son or a daughter of Adam, you are bound to have felt that way. It is a certain paganized Christianity that has put Christ as far away from us as possible. This alienation from God, this feeling that he is far away from us, that he really doesn't care about me. That's how Jesus felt on the cross. Do you see it? 
That's how Jesus felt on the cross. And now, the lions that have been circling him has him in his mouth. You read it in verse 21. Jesus feels like a lion has him in his mouth. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And it's in this desperate moment in horrible darkness that he breaks through the blackest of the clouds. In the middle of verse 21, you find Jesus finishes building his atonement bridge by faith. He can't see anything yet. He still feels forsaken. It's still dark. But now he has chosen to believe in total hopelessness. And as the King James Version suggests a clear rendition, it says, Thou hast heard me while I was tossed on the horns of the wild buffalo. There was a missionary that was gored by a wild buffalo. He enjoyed hunting the wild buffalo. And once he wounded a wild buffalo. And it snuck up behind him, unknown to him, and gored him to death. You know, wild buffaloes, they're very mean animals. Imagine yourself caught in a herd, and they're just tossing you on their horns like a ball up into the air. That's how Jesus described how he felt in his last extremity. And then he shouted, so that heaven and earth could hear him, you have answered me. I believe that's verse 21. You have answered me. By faith, he has triumphed. You have answered me. And so the rest of Psalm 22 now shifts into the high gear of a hymn of praise because Jesus, by faith, has bridged the atonement of his God-forsakenness. And here is where you and I come into the picture in Jesus' hymn of praise after this building of the bridge of atonement with his Father. And I don't have enough wisdom to know what really happened, but his loving heart has probably already ruptured, but in those last moments of consciousness as he's hanging on the cross and the shadows are gathering, Jesus is happy. Yes, his joy is full. The last trial is over. He has made it. It says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear or reverence the Lord, don't get discouraged. Praise him. And you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. Let your hearts tingle before him. All you offspring of Israel, because he is good. He is faithful. In verse 24, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he what? He heard. It's as though Jesus is giving his testimony to the crowd. Crowd, you know, when I cried out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He heard me. He heard me. And he answered me. Joy unspeakable. Joy unspeakable. He will answer you too, friend, when you feel God forsaken and you cry out to him. He will answer you the same way. Like you, a tempted sinner, Jesus says, I was tempted to think. I was tempted to think that he had forsaken me forever. But I have proven for all eternity that God is faithful. He heard me. My bridge of the atonement over this dark chasm of sin despair is built forever. Friend, you can trust your weight on it. You can trust your weight on it. And then we come to verses 25 and onward. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. He knows that he is dying, the equivalent of the second death. There is no hope of the resurrection that lights up his heart. But what makes him so supremely happy as he descends into the darkness of hell itself is the hard-won confidence that you, friend, will live forever. I will die forever. That makes me happy now, says Jesus. That makes me happy now. Amen? That joy that overflows from the heart of Jesus makes him want to hug you and the universe. The terrible struggle of eternity is over. The Father in this great sacrifice, too, is the great victor. And something special cheered the heart of Jesus. Poor, humble people such as you and I will be kings and queens forever in the kingdom. And our prayers will always be heard. Always. This is now the culminating moment to that introductory announcement that he made to the congregation there in Nazareth when he said, the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to who? To the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. You have two groups there, the poor and the brokenhearted. And if you are in either of those two fortunate categories, friend, Jesus' last conscious moment is a prayerful remembrance of you. Yes, let your heart live forever. If you are poor and brokenhearted, let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world, it says, shall remember they will turn to the Lord and all of the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Have you ever thought the cross established the kingdom of God forever and ever to rule over the nations? The whole government of God stood or fell with the crucifixion of Christ and his victory. There it is. With what unbounded joy he proclaims from his cross, because I commit my life to die forever, the Father's kingdom, the Father will rule forever as a result. And then verse 30. A posterity or a generation shall serve him. 
it will be recounted to the Lord to the next generation. Maybe you wonder what this generation could mean. Maybe the King James Version can suggest a key to help us understand where it says a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. In other words, a generation is a body of people who believe. A body of people who see his sacrifice and they appreciate what it costs the Son of God to love them and die for them. When the Lord has a remnant who finally appreciate what happened on that cross, whose worldly Laodicean hearts have been solemnized and moved by what they have come to see, it shall be accounted to him for a generation. Then he will come the second time to receive them unto himself. And then you have verse 31. They will come and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he hath done this. And there follows the one last word in the Hebrew, which is translated here, hath done. And the only way to translate that Hebrew word, asa, is the last word spoken by Jesus on the cross. It is done, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he died. Now there is the atonement. There is the atonement. That's the reconciliation. That's the bridge that has been built for you and for me. You can cross that bridge, the cross of Christ, by faith. By faith. None have ever appreciated to the fullest what it had cost until the world and the universe see that final group who will follow the Lamb wherever he goes in whose mouth is found no deceit. When the world sees a generation of people who appreciate what it costs the dear Savior to die for them on the cross, their hearts will be filled with the same agape and joy and the world will wonder at such a people who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Because here is a folk who have experienced the atonement complete. The tidings of great joy of Bethlehem sustain Christ to the very end. The very end. Isn't it wonderful? He died triumphant. What will make him happy? For you to share his true joy, that triumph. Share his joy. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Not the joy of Christmas frivolity, the joy of material possessions or of surfeiting or drunkenness, but the real joy of victory in Christ over sin and evil, the joy of finishing the work of God. Have you thought of a Christmas gift for Christ? I don't mean putting a dollar on the tree. Have you thought of the backward prayer, Master, eat? And what did he reply? He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I asked a person recently what he would like most for Christmas. And he said, the joy of seeing 
a certain loved one turned to Jesus Christ. That was the meat of Christ that he fed upon. Jesus would like that too, the joy of seeing all you turn to him for salvation. During the dark days of the Civil War, the president suffered pain such as no other president before or since. Lincoln's, Abraham Lincoln's nature was very sensitive, and he was a tender man, and he extended kindness to others and fairness and sympathy and generosity. His soul was just tortured by the passions of war, the hatred and the agonies. He loved the South, and he loved the North. And during the summer of 1864, Lincoln's fortunes were at their lowest ebb, and the nation was just sick of war and bloodshed, and the radical elements of the North and the South wanted peace at any price. But Lincoln knew that if slavery was not extinguished, all would be in vain. And the public tide turned against him. He had given his strength, his life for the nation, which now abhorred him, The newspapers now called him a guerrilla because of his appearance. His party was facing certain defeat. Even Lincoln expected defeat at the polls. Clouds of suspicion and resentment arose against the White House over the mismanagement of the government and the war. Get him out was the cry. Here was a brave, good man who was misunderstood and unappreciated, what would Lincoln want for Christmas in 1864? Victory, the lifting of the cloud from his administration. There is a cloud of suspicion against the government of God. The world has dark misapprehensions about him. Millions are persuaded that God has mismanaged the civil war of the universe. One-third of the angels and a vast majority of heaven's inhabitants are at war with God, at enmity against him. They would vote him out of office if they had the power to do so. The heavenly sanctuary is something like the White House in America, with the seat of God's government in the great controversy with Satan and sin. And until the sin problem is solved... Until the civil war caused by sin is ended and the world and the universe reconciled, the great heart of God cannot find rest. That's the state of it right now with him. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And Christ wants to come again and bring an end to sin. But he cannot force his people We talk about the nearness of the end with the signs of the times all around us. This and that sign. Christ Object Lessons 63 says, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. And that's all that stands between us and the second advent. I ask Someone, what is Christian character perfection? Because, you know, you talk about that and people dismiss it. It's like putting up a red flag and they say, impossible. So many objections against it. Here's the simple definition. 
when you can say that you appreciate the cost that the dear Savior laid out for you in dying for your sins on the cross and it went to die the equivalent of the second death, then you can say you have faith and there is no end of what that faith will do in working by agape. That's Christian perfection. When God's people want that so bad, when their focus is completely on the cross and the cross alone and Jesus' atonement, then he will come again for that generation. He will come any time we really want him to. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.